Hello, everyone, and welcome to Professor Jamerson's podcast. This is season one, episode three for introductory sociology concerning gender inequality. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Uh, This week's episode is about gender inequality, but first I want to do the customary update on the spread of the COVID pandemic. Last week, for Sociology of Health and Sexuality, we were sitting at 401,608 cases in the United States with uh, almost 13,000 deaths. Today, that number stands at 586,000 cases with 23,000 deaths, so 10,000 fatalities in the last six days. I think it was uh, less than a week ago for the last podcast. Also want to point out that that for many of us, this is starting to get very personal. Uh, some of your classmates have gotten sick with this. Students at Virginia Tech have gotten sick with this, both in Blacksburg and elsewhere. Um, and also our relatives, our loved ones are starting to get sick and some of them are starting to pass away. And, and, and I've gotten emails about this from some of your classmates as well. I personally have a relative in the hospital with COVID-19 right now. So thank you for uh, all the frontline workers, all of the essential workers who are really in a bind right now, both with their working conditions and um, not getting support that they need externally. And let's now have a moment of silence for the people that we've lost so far. Thank you. Thank you. So this week we're talking about gender inequality. Really, this is the sociology of gender, but I like the fact that our textbook, <coughs> excuse me, takes this uh, approach based, this inequality based approach to the study of gender. And so we start here, right, with this question, as all of our textbook chapters do in 2017, what proportion of all CEOs of Fortune 500 companies were women? And the answer is a 5%. And, and the, the question, so why is this the case? Why do so few women hold leadership positions in business and in and, and, and high-ranking business positions? Um, and part of it has to do with this notion of the, the, the maleness, the, the, the inherent masculinity of what we think of as being a cutthroat professional and what we think of as being um, a high-profit-creating worker. And, and these sorts of tests, these are all coded as masculine. So this is what we're going to be talking about today. How is this notion of gender, which, which, which we far often take to be this biologically constructed entity, right? We, we associate gender with sexual organs in many ways. But as our textbook chapter will point out here, that there is a big difference between sex and gender. Sex is going to be biologically based. And we've talked about this in class a little bit, while gender is going to be a pure social construction and and this this question of uh, how women are are very underrepresented in high ranking business positions is evidence of how the social construction of gender creates actual and real inequality in people's lives and so this is the connection we're going to be making and we're going to be making this connection when we talk about the social construction of race next week Right, gender is socially constructed. It's not actually real, but there are these very significant real consequences associated with both, both, both in terms of 
the inequality that we see in society and how we think about ourselves. And, 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 and speaking to questions of identity and social structure. And so uh, the, the social construction of gender permeates society in many ways. All societies have it in some form, even though it's socially constructed differently, for example, in different societies. And so this is, I think our textbook does a good job of discussing the intricacies, intricacies excuse me, of all of this. And we think about why women uh, are less likely to rise to the top of a given uh, corporate organization, for example. And I've got here along the, the, in my notes, my textbook, a list of, of different companies and formal organizations who in very, very recent years have all gone through sexual harassment scandals. And there have been scandals about the very cultures associated with these workplaces. What is it like to go into the office on a daily basis in these places as a woman and, and, and how is that going to affect how you may rise in that company? And so just a short list and check the news. These, these, these folks have all been in the news for various reasons about sexual harassment and assault and, and misogyny in the workplace. Deutsche Bank, the Carolina Panthers, Baylor Athletics, uh, of course, Harvey Weinstein and his whole film production company, Fox News, Uber, Google, Yale Law School, Dartmouth Psychology Department, Tinder, Walmart, to name just a few. And I'm not just talking about corporate organizations here. I'm talking about formal organizations, broadly speaking, educational institutions, uh, professional sports teams, these sorts of organizations, all of which fostered these workplace cultures where masculinity, aggressive masculinity was valued and therefore femininity, however we want to think about it, was devalued. And, and, and in these workplace cultures, there's a very definite image of what femininity should be. It should be a subservient gender role. It should act as almost like a cheerleader role in many ways for what the men are doing in the office. And 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 luckily women started to speak out and, and we could link all of these scandals becoming scandals to something like the Me Too movement. And we've talked about the Me Too movement being um, affiliated, or if we want to go back to Evans and Chamberlain, with this fourth wave of feminism. So before we move to basic concepts, I do want to read this paragraph from our textbook. It's towards the end of this introductory section, and it's really a nice synopsis of what they're doing in this chapter. In this chapter, and this is the bottom of page 282, if you're following along, in this chapter, we will take a sociological approach to the explanation of gender differences and gender inequality. Gender is a way for society to divide people into two categories, men and women. According to this socially created division, men and women have different identities and social roles. Men and women are expected to think and act in different ways across most life domains. Gender also serves as a social status since in almost all societies, in almost all societies, men's roles are valued more than women's roles are. At the same time, the cultural expectation that men must be strong, silent breadwinners creates tremendous pressure with some researchers going so far as to argue that these pressures can be physically and emotionally dangerous to men, especially those who did not live up to these expectations. And so there's a lot to unpack here in this paragraph, which is why I wanted to read the whole thing. First of all, this notion that, that in modern societies and in most societies throughout human history, most but not all, as our textbook will talk about, 
Uh, gender is socially constructed into two categories, male and female, and this creates an inherent binary, an either-or proposition, one or the other. And far too often, with binaries, we, we start to place value judgments on them as well, where male equals good, for example, female equals bad. I've talked about this a little bit in class so far. But but one of the, the freeing things, thinking back to the sociological imagination, one of the, the, the fruits that we get from thinking sociologically about gender is, is we get to escape this, this, these boxes. We get to think of gender as this very fluid and dynamic category that is practiced in a, in a variety of different ways by different individuals across time. And space, and this is once again one of these gifts of the sociological imagination to allow us to think about gender in this way. Gender also serves as a social status. Once again, all men's roles being valued more than women's roles are this notion of once we once we have a binary, we can then place value judgments on either side. At the same time, cultural expectations that men must be strong, silent breadwinners creates tremendous pressure, and so this this. You know, we think of women being oppressed by gender relations, and, and this is true. Women are oppressed by gender relations in the way that gender is socially constructed in society, but, but men are also negatively affected by the pressures associated with conforming to gender roles. That is the argument here. And, and I'll make a similar argument with, with race and racism in society, that racism is bad for everyone, even white people who would seemingly stand to benefit from it. Uh, I think the textbook here is making kind of a similar argument is that is that gender inequality is bad for everyone, men, women, uh, and, and people who don't fit into these two categories, transgender, transsexual individuals, for example. So once again, a lot to unpack in this paragraph, but I wanted to talk about it before we move on. And this is why we can't think about just gender. If we want to think about gender inequality, we have to think about other inputs as well. And as our textbook says, this is where the notion of intersectionality, which we have talked about in class, if you'll recall, becomes very important to understanding uh, a more nuanced way of how gender operates in the modern world. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Uh, this week's episode is about gender inequality. But first, I want to do the customary update on the spread of the COVID pandemic. Last week, for Sociology of Health and Sexuality, we were sitting at 401,608 cases in the United States with uh, almost 13,000 deaths. Today, that number stands at 586,000 cases with 23,000 deaths, so 10,000 fatalities in the last six days. I think it was uh, less than a week ago for the last podcast. Also want to point out that that for many of us, this is starting to get very personal. Uh, some of your classmates have gotten sick with this. Students at Virginia Tech have gotten sick with this, both in Blacksburg and elsewhere. Um, and also our relatives, our loved ones are starting to get sick and some of them are starting to pass away. And, and, and I've gotten emails about this from some of your classmates as well. I personally have a relative in the hospital with COVID-19 right now. So thank you for uh, all the frontline workers, all of the essential workers who are really in a bind right now, both with their working conditions and um, not getting support that they need externally. 
And let's now have a moment of silence for the people that we've lost so far. Thank you. Thank you. So this week we're talking about gender inequality. Really, this is the sociology of gender, but I like the fact that our textbook <clears throat> excuse me, takes this uh, approach based, this inequality-based approach to the study of gender. And so we start here, right, with this question, as all of our textbook chapters do, in 2017, what proportion of all CEOs of Fortune 500 companies were women? And the answer is A, 5%. And, and the, the question, so why is this the case? Why do so few women hold leadership positions in business and in 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 high-ranking business positions, um, and part of it has to do with this notion of the the, the maleness, the, the the inherent masculinity of what we think of as being a cutthroat professional, and what we think of as being um, a high-profit-creating worker, and and these sorts of tests, these are all coded as masculine. So this is what we're going to be talking about today. How is this notion of gender, which 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 we far often take to be this biologically constructed entity, right? We, we associate gender with sexual organs in many ways, but as our textbook chapter will point out here that there is a big difference between sex and gender. Sex is going to be biologically based. And we've talked about this in class a little bit while gender is going to be a pure social construction. And, and this, this question of uh, how women are, are very underrepresented in high-ranking business positions is evidence of how the social construction of gender creates actual and real inequality in people's lives. And so this is the connection we're going to be making. And we're going to be making this connection when we talk about the social construction of race next week. Right, Gender is socially constructed. It's not actually real, but there are these very significant real consequences associated with both, both, both in terms of the inequality that we see in society and how we think about ourselves and, 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 and speaking to questions of identity and social structure. And so uh, the, the social construction of gender permeates society in many ways. All societies have it in some form, even though it's socially constructed differently, for example, in different societies. And so this is, I think our textbook does a good job of discussing the intricacies, intricacies, excuse me, of all of this. So if gender is socially constructed, then it is something we learn how to do. So how do we learn how to do gender? Well, that starts actually before we even think that we're learning something, it starts at a very young age. Um, it starts through what we call gender socialization. And, and if you'll notice here on page 287, uh, we have these two conversations between these two new grandparents talking about a newborn infant. And, and once again, infants are, are gender socialized as soon as they're born, right? As soon as, a, as soon as a baby is born, they're going to put a blue hat on them if they have a penis. And they'll put a pink hat on them if there's a vagina there. And, and it starts immediately. And it's prescribed. It's imposed in many ways. And then, and then it continues on with some of these first conversations. <coughs> Here's Grandpa A and Grandma A. Grandma A, there he is. Our first grandchild and a boy. Oh, isn't he a hefty little fellow? Look at that fist he's making. He's going to be a regular little fighter. That guy is. And Grandpa smiles and throws a boxing jab to his grandson. Atta boy. Grandma says, let's go and congratulate the parents. I know they're thrilled about little Fred. 
they wanted a boy first. Grandpa A says, yeah, and they were sure it would be a boy too, what with all that kicking and thumping going on even before he got here. And even in these comments, we can see gender expectations associated with boys and girls. By the way, all babies kick in the womb. All babies kick in the womb. Some babies, boys or girls, kick more or less than other babies in the womb. It's not really a thing that boy babies kick more than girl babies too. Once again, Grandpa Babies make fists because they always clench their hands, right? It's sort of a natural reaction for them because they don't really know they have fingers. Grandpa interprets the fist as a boxing match or a boxing thing, right? Once again, putting on aggressive aggression and, and, and these familiar tropes of masculinity, projecting them on to this tiny, tiny infant that probably doesn't weigh more than nine pounds. And let's compare these conversations to Grandma B and Grandpa B talking about a little girl that was just born. Grandma B says, there she is, the only one with a pink bow taped to her head. Isn't she darling? Grandpa B says, yeah, isn't she little? Look at how tiny her fingers are. Oh, look, she's trying to make a fist. Grandma B says, isn't she sweet? You know, I think she looks a little like me. Grandpa B says, yeah, she sort of does. She has your chin. Grandma B says, oh, look, she's starting to cry. Poor little girl. There, there, we'll try to help you. Grandpa B says, let's find the nurse. I don't like to see her cry. Grandma B says, hmm, I wonder when they will have their next one. I know Fred would like a son, but little Frederica is well and healthy. After all, that's what really matters. They're young yet. They have time for more kids. I'm thankful, too, that she's healthy. And, 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 and comparing these conversations, once again, look at these on page 287. Comparing these conversations, we get a lot of little clues as to how masculinity is valued over femininity in this situation. Notice in the first conversation regarding the boy, there's no talk. Of Sorry about that. I got cut off. Please excuse me. Uh, notice with the, the, the conversation about the boys, there's no conversation about a next child. Uh, they wanted a boy first, they, meaning they did not want a girl first. Notice how the girl is described in this conversation. Once again, um, thinking about tropes of femininity now, uh, we're talking about her looks, right? She looks like grandma, for example. Oh, look, poor little baby. She's trying to make a fist. Isn't it cute how she's trying to make a fist? Whereas the boy definitely did make a little fist. According to the grandpa, uh, we want to um, tend to, uh, the girls are more emotional, so we don't like to see baby girls cry. Nothing about the little boy crying in the first paragraph. And so throughout these very short conversations, we get a picture of how gender socialization starts to affect our lives even before we're really aware that it does. Next, I want to move on to sociological theories of gender inequalities, and our textbook really uses two basic paradigms that we've kind of talked about in class to discuss this. The first are these functionalist approaches to gender, really popular up until like the mid-20th century. Talcott Parsons is mentioned here, comes up with this quintessential functionalist approach to gender in terms of gender roles. Um, he saw the family as operating most efficiently with a clear-cut sexual division of labor in which women carry out expressive roles such as providing care and security to children and offering them emotional support 
and men perform instrumental roles, namely being the breadwinner. And, and, and so when we think about, this is a very popular theory coming out of structural functionalism in the mid 20th century. Um, and it really reinforces this binary that, that I talked about earlier on in the chapter and this binary that our textbook, even if we think about the, the discussion of sexuality last week, really tries to challenge in some important ways. Um, feminists have shortly critiqued structural functionalism because it, it is rooted in these biological claims for fixed gender identity for the sexual division of labor, arguing that there is nothing natural or inevitable about the allocation of tasks in society. Women are not prevented from pursuing occupations on the basis of biological features. Rather, humans are socialized into roles that are culturally expected. Think back to G.I. Jane. Further, a steady stream of evidence suggests that the maternal deprivation thesis is questionable, meaning that kids that grow up without mothers will have challenges, but don't always end up being lost souls, for example. And this was thought to be like, this is why moms have to stay home with kids, because their kids will grow up to be deviant or, 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 or something like that based in Freudian psychology. Um, there's not a lot of evidence for that. And so if we think about dominant sociological theories up until the mid 20th century, they really did support this, this gender binary that um, is really the linchpin of how gender inequality works in the world right now. In terms of feminist theories, feminist theories really evolved as a response to these dominant theories of gender coming out of structural functionalism and the first response is this notion of liberal feminism. And I really want you to be able to know the differences between these feminist theories. Our textbook does a pretty good job of parsing them out. Liberal feminism sees gender inequalities as rooted largely in social and cultural attitudes. This means we can change. We don't have to really change the structure of society. We can keep capitalism, for example. We can keep the nuclear family, for example. We can keep marriage, for example. But we just have to like make them a little bit more equal for women. And we can change slowly, and if we keep changing slowly, eventually women will have full equality in 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 a world that um, they didn't have before. And this is a, a fundamental challenge that 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 radical feminism poses. Radical feminism, uh, contra liberal feminism, um, holds the belief that men are responsible for and benefit from the exploitation of women. And, and that means that, that all of society's institutions reflect this patriarchy. So capitalism, um, marriage, the, the idea of the family, right? All of these social institutions become tools of the patriarchy. And so therefore all of society becomes patriarchal. And so the only way to achieve gender inequality is to overthrow the patriarchal order. And this is radical feminism, not to be confused, of course, with socialist feminism, which holds that capitalism is the most likely culprit of all gender inequality, but also that gender inequality is, is influenced not just by patriarchy, but also through economics. It is also influenced by culture, by nation, by caste and class. And, and, and all of this can be solved by creating an economically more equal and stable society. And then we move to black feminism and transnational feminism. Black feminism very much based in the African-American female experience. Uh, 
As we've talked about in class, transnational feminism, by contrast, focuses primarily on intersections among nationhood, race, gender, sexuality, and ex economic exploitation against the contemporary backdrop of global capitalism. And so black feminism traditionally stays within American context, even though Patricia Hill Collins does talk about the global potential applications of the specific kind of black feminism. Transnational feminism starts from the global and thinks about these, these connections between, for example, the global South and the global North and how gender inequalities uh, are exacerbated by the inequalities we see between countries. I'm not going to require you to know much about postmodern feminism. We get a little blurb about it here in our textbook. Uh, basically, postmodern feminism uh, rejects any grand narratives about both gender inequality and the social construction of gender and argues that gender is constantly performed in a continuum of behaviors and activities. And we need to account for that. Uh, we need to account for that fluidity whenever we consider issues of gender inequality. Moving on to research on gender today, documenting and understanding gender inequalities. What our textbook does here is go through really four sites of inequality. When we think about gender inequality, well, where does it happen? What does it look like? And so we start with schools and, and, and we've got research citing that boys are treated differently than girls in school um, at, at all ages, at all levels of the educational system and in many different situations. We've got sections on gender inequality in colleges, how uh, men in colleges are, are, fat, are tracked into, um, for example, STEM fields, and women are tracked into more liberal arts and humanities fields by virtue of the sort of emotional labors that are associated or the lack of emotional labor that's associated with STEM and, and the fact that the humanities are supposed to be recognizant of emotion and supposed to be factoring that in into our understanding of reality. And so these are just a few examples of, uh, of how gender inequality manifests in schools. We also have differences in admission rates and these sorts of things. Um, workplace, we've talked about workplaces a lot. Uh, we talked about the glass ceiling, uh, which is this, this tendency of women to, 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 they'll be able to rise, but only to upper middle management, never up to the very top of the organizational hierarchy. Um, and, and of course, schools and and work, these are out in public. And and there's another major site of gender inequality, the home, that, that plays a big role in how this all plays out. Women are much more likely to do the majority of the domestic labor in a given household. And there's plenty of statistics to talk about that. Please look at them. I will ask you about some of these statistics on your exam. Um, for example, what's one right here? Sorry, I'm trying to find one on domestic labor because it was a good one. Ah, yes, here it is. In 1965, this is on page 310. In 1965, women performed 32 hours of housework per week. That's almost a full-time job. This figure had dropped to 18 hours by 2011. That's, you know, half of 32. No, it's less than half or more than half of 32. Excuse me. I'm not good at math. By contrast, men's housework increased from four to 10 hours per week between 1965 and 2011. And so in 1965, 
women were performing 32 hours of housework per week, and men were performing four hours of housework per week. By 2011, women were performing 18 hours of housework per week, and men were performing 10 hours of housework per week. And so we still see an incredible discrepancy in the gender division of labor. And this is a good term to probably remember for your exam, the gender division of labor, the fact that we associate different tasks and occupations with different gender roles. And so what's the, the last side of inequality I believe they talk about is politics. And we do have a very underrepresented, we have women being underrepresented in politics. Uh, I believe the Democratic field started out with more women in it than in history, but uh, I think Elizabeth Warren was the last woman in the race. She dropped out a couple months ago. We do have some uh, pretty prominent female politicians on the Republican side. That has, I've noticed a kind of a decrease in the prominence of female Republicans since 2016. Um, so politics, and, and really this, this becomes an issue because we think about how, how political decisions are made and, and what constituents are you, are you considering? Um, we often don't think about gendered constituencies in the way that we think about constituencies of political parties or geographic constituencies, for example. And so women's voices get lost in the democratic Republican shuffle in many ways. And of course, now the Republican party is, is moving towards decreasing women's rights through through the courts and and through um through limiting reproductive rights and this is happening throughout the country as well right now so moving on to the final part of our chapter when we think about unanswered questions why do we see this persistence of gender inequality and we start with this gender pay gap why do women earn less than men what are possible causes for this to be sure, sex discrimination is absolutely a cause. Uh, a, a sexist employer, for example, and these could be men or women, I would imagine, uh, who subscribe, and both men and women, right, uh, um, subscribe to these gender roles in many ways. Um, sex discrimination is going to be a part of it, right? I'm just not going to pay you as much because you're a woman for this work. Like that's going to be a part of it. But I think another part of it is this notion of sex segregation. The concentration of men and women in different occupation is also a cause for the gender gap. Women are, 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 are because of all these other things we've talked about, not likely to be in these higher paying positions. We tend to value men's work more than women's work. For example, we tend to value working outside the home more than working inside the home, especially financially. And so these are all reasons why we see this, this persistent pay gap between women. You know that men make $1.30 for every dollar that women make. For example, um, human capital theory is also discussed as a possible explanation, but our, our textbook criticizes this quite thoroughly on feminist grounds. Second unanswered question, how does gender inequality affect men? Well, it's bad for guys. It's bad for guys. There are pressures for guys to conform to certain standards. It drives some 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 men over the edge, and and we end up with this this awful incel 
community on the internet blaming women for all of their problems, for blaming women as the perpetuators of these images of masculinity when in fact it's coming from men as well. And when we think about gender inequality, right, we've got to think about the root of the problem and the root of the problem in many ways is this notion of toxic masculinity, is this notion that men are biologically and intellectually and morally even superior to women. And this is still a, a widely held, these are widely held beliefs around the world today. And, and, and men are negatively affected by this, perhaps not to the extent that women are, but are nevertheless neg negatively affected by this. Men, for example, are much more likely to commit suicide. We've talked about suicide in this class. Men also tend to die younger than women, are less likely to go to the doctor for regular checkups because of, ah, oh, I'm a tough guy, I don't need a doctor, I feel fine. The pressure on men to make sacrifices so that they can, I'm quoting from the book here, so that they can provide their families takes a long and short-term toll on their personal relationships. At every age, from childhood to later life, children report more close-knit and supportive relationships with their mothers than with their fathers. Fathers' more tenuous ties with their children dissolve even further upon divorce, creating a situation where older unmarried men have few sources of support later in life. For these reasons, the call for gender equality does not benefit women only. Rather, equal opportunities for men and women are critical for the health, well-being, and quality of life for all. And then finally, and I like how our textbook ends, ends, with, uh, ends that section with this, but our textbook definitely ends our chapter on a much more dour note. Unanswered question. Why are women so often the targets of violence? And we go through here this, this section on sexual violence, concepts and patterns. Uh, rape is an all too common subtype of violence against women's uh, against women. And this refers, this refers specifically to forced penetrative intercourse um, in some way. Uh, rape is relatively uncommon, but unchecked male sexual aggression is not. And when I say rape is relatively uncommon, we don't see a whole lot. Statistically speaking of rape cases, we see some groups of women that are, are affected by this at higher levels. But more importantly, the majority and, and what our textbook says here, it is difficult to know how many rapes actually occur because most, the majority, most of them go unreported. And so when we think about rape as a social problem and, and the way and, and, and the women that it affects and who has come out and who we know about this, it's really the tip of the iceberg. And, and why is that, right? Why is this allowed to persist? Why is it just the tip of the iceberg? Well, what happens if a rape survivor comes forward? I'm not going to use the word victim. What happens if a rape survivor comes forward? Well, they're often blamed for dressing inappropriately, for making a suggestive comment, for, for many other things. And so the actions of, uh, the, of the perpetrator become secondhand. And, and, it, and it gets chalked up to this boys will be boys attitude. Once again, thinking about these gender norms and how they create gender inequality in society. Why does this violence persist? Have you ever been to... Ladies' night at a bar. You ever been to a frat party 
where girls can get in free or if you're a guy, but if you show up with like two or three girls, you can get into the party. Right? Feminist scholars call this cattle herding. And it's part of college culture. Once again, victim blaming becomes an especially uh, potent form of women's repression in these cases. And so I'll end here with some words for the textbook. Feminist scholars, feminist scholars are pessimistic that gendered inequalities, whether it's pay, inequality, or sexual violence, will be eradicated anytime soon. But these, might, these problems may be attacked slowly and gradually. They describe the eradication of gendered inequalities as the paramount moral challenge of this century. I think we've got a few of those. And they believe that the education and financial empowerment of women is a first essential step. And so education becomes important. Right. And really, it's about changing norms in many ways. And so thank you for bearing with me in this longer podcast. I'm trying to just fit everything in um, that I would normally say in a class. And of course, I've got to go fast and I can't cover it all. So please bear with me. You'll hear from me next week. Please stay safe. And I will be thinking about you all. Take care.